I have a confession I need to make at the beginning of this week's show. What you're about to hear is not what I had planned or even been working on for episode 6. Don't worry, you'll still get to hear that, and I promise that last week's cliffhanger will still be resolved. But, out of all of the twists this story has taken up to now, this week's? They're probably the strangest. This week's episode is about two unrelated mysteries that have consumed a small corner of the internet recently. Now look, as I said from the very beginning, this is a podcast about stories and what those stories can tell us about ourselves and the world we live in. Now, along with trying to understand the mystery of people who disappear in America's national parks, the show is also about how we consume information, or in this week's episode's case, how we miss information and how some stories get lost in the shuffle that is the modern news cycle. I'm recording this on the week of Thanksgiving 2020. America is embroiled in the aftermath of possibly the most contentious election in modern history. The world awaits the release of a vaccine that could potentially put an end to a global pandemic. The stress and uncertainty of the holidays is weighing on families, and the New England Patriots are about to be eliminated from playoff contention in November for the first time in 20 years. Look, all that to say, you'd be forgiven if you somehow missed two of the strangest stories of the year. Two that could possibly have real implications for the mysteries we've unpacked up to now. One takes place in the vast deserts of America's Southwest. The other spans the backwoods, lonely hiking trails, and forgotten wilderness that stretches from upstate New York down the eastern seaboard all the way to the swampy forests of Florida. But if you didn't just happen to stumble upon them or know where to look, you may have never even known about them, or may not even be aware that the questions they raise were even being asked in the first place. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. And this is Hiding Something. Chapter 6. Just when you thought things were getting really weird. On November 18th, just a few days before I recorded this, a small crew boarded a helicopter commissioned by the Utah Department of Public Safety and took a flight over the vast wilderness of southern Utah. On board were officers from the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. They set out for some routine observation and tracking of the region's bighorn sheep population. Once a widespread species, hunting and disease nearly drove them to extinction last century. And if it wasn't for a teamwork effort by the National Park Service and the Utah Department of Wildlife back in the 1970s, there likely wouldn't be any left in the region today. Interestingly, in the canyons outside Moab, there are surprisingly well-preserved petroglyphs that sharply depict the bighorn sheep. Scientists have dated the images back thousands of years. But considering the remote location of the region's remaining bighorn herds, it's not unsurprising that officials needed to take a helicopter last week. This is extremely remote country we're talking about. While flying over the sun-baked canyons on the lookout for bighorn sheep, they saw something odd glimmering in the sunlight below them. Whoa, 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 turn around, turn around. And I was like, what? And he's like, there's this thing, there's this thing back there. We got to go look at it. That's the voice of Utah Department of Public Safety helicopter pilot Brett Hutchings discussing the events with Utah's KSL-TV News. In the middle of the barren desert stood a mysterious metal monolith. I would say it's probably between 10 and 12 feet high. It's just wild. We are kind of joking around that if one of us suddenly disappears, then uh, I guess the rest of us make a run for it. So, Pilot Brett Hutchings says it didn't look like it was dropped there. 
it was firmly planted into the ground. We're like thinking, okay, is this something like NASA stuck up there or something, you know, are they bouncing satellites off it or something? It seemed less scientific and more artistic. I'm assuming it is, you know, some new wave artist or something, you know, or somebody that just is a big uh, 2001 Space Odyssey fan. The video from KSL-TV shows the vision of wildlife resource officers descend into a deep valley to inspect a very odd object. The video shows a three-sided metallic column standing perfectly upright on the desert floor. Its sides, they have a mirror-like finish and are about as wide as a person, but it towers nearly 12 feet tall. And despite Hutchings' speculation about secret NASA satellites, the exterior doesn't actually appear to show any electronic components. It looks like a perfectly shaped triangular column that's as shiny as chrome and taller than a basketball goal, jetting from the floor of a canyon deep in America's remote desert. We work with the uh, Division of Natural Resources uh, with their biologists uh, doing bio, bio counts and stuff. And so this just happened to be one of the areas that we were working in. And uh, one of the biologists actually is the one who spotted this monolith looking thing and kind of, you know, said, hey, wait, turn around. That's Brett again in a phone conversation him and I had earlier this week. Brett spent more than three decades flying for the state of Utah and the U.S. military. And according to him, who got to inspect the monolith up close, the construction is solid. We kind of looked down at the very base of it and it looks like they'd taken a cement saw and cut uh, into the sandstone. It's very solidly placed in there. Uh, I think some of the pictures show one of the biologists actually got up on top of my shoulders and we were looking on the top of it to see if there was any kind of, you know, writing or inscription or anything on there and couldn't find anything at all. But it's, uh, it's definitely very solid. We were pushing on it. Five days after the strange object started making the rounds on other websites, the Utah Department of Public Safety posted a public statement. It read in part, On November 18, 2020, the Utah Department of Public Safety Aero Bureau was working with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources to conduct a count of bighorn sheep in a portion of southeastern Utah. While on this mission, they spotted an unusual object and landed nearby to investigate further. The exact location of the installation is not being disclosed since it is in a very remote area, and if individuals were to attempt to visit the area, there is a significant possibility they may become stranded and require a rescue." End quote. Now, the local news video ends on a jokey tone, ultimately landing on a reference to the monolith featured in Stanley Kubrick's sci-fi mindbender 2001 A Space Odyssey. In the film, a group of early primates encounters a similar structure, which inspires them to make weapons. Okay, spoiler alert, but honestly, look, the movie's been out literally for 50 years, so if you haven't seen it by now, I don't feel so bad about spoiling the ending. At the end of the movie, a human-helmed mission to Jupiter leads to another very strange encounter with yet another monolith on the surface of Jupiter. But there are a couple of things that make it seem like the one found last week wasn't some obscure reference to a Kubrick film, and yet is another odd wrinkle in the mystery surrounding happenings in America's wildlands. First off, the monolith in 2001's A Space Odyssey is black, not metallic. Second, it's a totally different shape. Kubrick's monolith is a slender rectangle, almost like a large door frame. The one found last week is a vertical, three-sided column. If this was a strange piece of performance art meant to be an homage to a famous sci-fi film, wouldn't the designers make it look like the one from the movie? 
Also, how would they have transported it? And the column doesn't appear to have seams or signs of welding. It would have taken a truck with at least a 12-foot bed to transport it. And though officials haven't released the location of the object, it's clear from the images that they've shared that it's in a deep valley with large vertical walls around it. In other words, it'd be a difficult task to get a truck down there. He couldn't see any writing up there on the top of it. You know, we, we were kind of looking to see if it was, you know, welded or anything. It's not really welded, so it's kind of interesting how they've constructed it. be interesting to find out. So for a second, let's go back to the concept of Occam's razor from the last episode. You know, it's the idea that the simplest explanation is likely the most reasonable. This structure would have cost a lot of money to construct, much less transport and somehow mount in the clay-like floor of the southern Utah desert. And what would the possible motivation have been? If it wasn't for the off chance that a Department of Wildlife Resources helicopter just happened to be flying over that exact spot, it might not have ever even been found. There were also no signs of digging, so it's evidently been there for a while. I mean, somebody definitely put a lot of time and and, uh, energy into constructing it. It's uh, not cheaply done. I'd say it cost them a little bit of money to put it together and then haul it out there. Um, But the grooves where you could tell pretty much where the the, uh, sandstone had been cut, they were filled in pretty well. And it looks like that area that it's located in, that there is actually... You know, when the thunderstorms and stuff like that come through, that it probably gets a fairly decent runoff into that particular area. And it's able to uh, probably fill that in pretty well, is my guess. I don't know. We don't know if the frame underneath the stainless steel, which is what it appears to be made out of, if it's got a metal frame, if it's a wood frame, or we, we really couldn't figure that out just looking at it and stuff. But it's definitely a very solid piece of uh, artwork or whatever they're doing with it. In a caption to a post on Instagram, the Utah Highway Patrol wrote that it was, quote, buried in the middle of nowhere, end quote. They added, quote, what do you think it is, with a shrugging shoulder emoji and one of an alien head. Look, in the modern news cycle, by the time you hear this podcast, we may have an answer to the mystery. Maybe it was a weird art project that some wealthy, very motivated person erected in the desert for some reason. I mean, maybe officials in Utah are pranking us. Though, let's be honest, what a weird prank. What would their possible motivation have been? The Utah local news story was first posted on Saturday morning, but it started making the rounds on bigger outlets the next week, days after it aired in the local Utah markets to not much fanfare. Now, since then, it has gained some viral attention, and Brett's been doing his share of interviews. It's kind of funny. I I got call last night from i guess it's the biggest ufo website on the internet or something some guys out of uh hawaii i can't remember the guy i think the guy's name was blake he called me about quarter after midnight last night and uh was asking me and he told me that people had seen the thing fall out of the sky and stuff (laughs) Uh, really uh okay that's a new one and uh they were telling me yeah that the search and rescue people had already been in there and tried to pull it out and they couldn't get to it and i thought well that's interesting because we talked with the searching people uh rescue people yesterday on our way back down to the moab area and they wanted to know where it was (laughs) it's it's been pretty insane to be honest with you again i'm recording this late tuesday night and the story's gone sort of viral in the last couple days but do you know where i first saw it A few hours after it went up, Brandon Fugel, the mysterious owner of Skinwalker Ranch, who we learned about back in episode 5, 
tweeted a video of what he calls a, quote, mysterious 12-foot-tall metallic monolith discovered in remote southern Utah. The piece ended with this soundbite. As the crew headed home, they only wished they had the answers. Yeah, we've never, that, I have to admit, that, that's been about what, the strangest thing that I've come across out there in all the years of flying. Okay, just for a quick catch-up, Fugel is a Utah real estate mogul and the owner of Skinwalker Ranch, a remote property in the Utah desert that he purchased under a shell company after it had been home to the U.S. government's secret Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Here's the thing. Fugel is not a prolific Twitter user. Aside from the video about the monolith in the desert, he's only posted a handful of times in recent months. One of the other tweets was a link to an article in Discover Magazine, which he quoted this line, quote, At least a dozen interpretations of quantum mechanics vie for physicists' hearts and minds, each with a radically different take on reality, end quote. He then added this bit of his own commentary, quote, Bottom line, nobody understands the true nature of reality, end quote. One of his only other tweets in November of 2020 came days before officials discovered the monolith. It read, quote, the somewhat uncomfortable and mind-blowing truth, end quote. It accompanied a retweet of a video clip of a years-old 60 Minutes interview with the reclusive billionaire former owner of Skinwalker Ranch who partnered with the Pentagon to research UFOs, Robert Bigelow. Do you believe in aliens? I'm absolutely convinced that's all there is to it. Do you also believe that UFOs have come to Earth? There has been and is an existing presence, uh, an ET presence. And I've spent millions and millions, I probably spent more as an individual than anybody else in the United States has ever spent on this subject. Is it risky for you to say, you know, in public that you believe I don't in, give in a UFOs damn. and aliens? I don't care. You don't worry that some people will say, did you hear that guy? He sounds like he's crazy. I don't care. Why not? It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to change reality of what I know. Do you imagine that in our space travels we will encounter other forms of intelligent life? You don't have to go anywhere. You can find it here? Yeah. <laughs> Where exactly? It's just like right under people's noses. Oh my gosh. Wow. The FAA confirmed to us that for years it referred reports of UFOs and other unexplained phenomena to a company Bigelow owns. Okay, so I'm not saying that the weird structure stumbled upon in the American wilderness is the work of aliens or mysterious creatures, though clearly, that's what Fugel seems to be implying. Look, odds are, it is a strange piece of performance art that just happened to be finally discovered. But if you're first hearing about it on this podcast, if it wasn't for Brandon Fugel, you probably wouldn't have heard about it or spent the last 10 minutes thinking about it. And when I was talking to Brett, he did want to discuss another incident that he experienced in the deserts over Utah one night. I've seen uh, some stuff that I haven't been able to, to figure out what it was, uh, basically out in the west deserts of, of Utah, out around Dugway Proving Grounds and stuff. I used to fly out there quite a bit. So I've seen some stuff that uh, we would look at under the night vision goggles and also under the uh, infrared systems that we had on the aircraft. And it's like, okay, is this something that the... Um, black ops people are you know working on you know because there's a lot of stuff that goes out strange stuff that goes out on the uh, west desert in utah and uh the deserts out in nevada and that i'm sure you're familiar with area 51 and that yeah so i've flown down around in that area and that you just see a lot of the stuff i'm sure it's just test aircraft and that but you're not able to explain it and i had uh i did have one particular uh situation 
one night where I was actually going, I was flying for uh, Air Med at the University of Utah, going up what's called Parley's Canyon, which is the main area where Interstate 80 runs through uh, up towards Park City. And we had a light that was coming at the aircraft. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And um, I was trying to get hold of the aircrafts, make sure they could see us. And um, they weren't talking at all. And it was really bizarre because uh, I called Salt Lake City Tower and asked them if they had anybody else out there on radar. And they said, no, we were the only ones showing up on radar. And I said, oh, I've, I've got this white light that's coming right at me. And I actually turned and it kind of turned and kept coming towards me and then just really this is what kind of freaked me out it literally stopped in midair and reversed course and went back the other direction and continued to keep going away from us and here's the bizarre part it went basically back up over the area where skinwalker ranch is located and i thought okay that's too freaky (laughs) but one of those things that you go okay what was that what was it all about Like that story? The story of the monolith is strange. It's a big, weird, flashy story that demands your attention. But it's also one relegated to the quote, weird news section of your news sources. I mean, I totally get why, but who determines what's a novelty story and which ones demand your attention? Now, I want to bring your attention to a second mystery. It's a much more somber one, but one that is equally baffling. And if it wasn't for the internet, you probably wouldn't have heard about it either. Though to be fair, a lot of people have heard this story, and they've spent a tremendous amount of time devoting themselves to solving its mystery. It sparked message board groups, online investigations, and even an intervention from a DNA analysis startup. This, as Wired Magazine, the prestigious culture and tech outlet put it, is a story of, quote, a nameless hiker in the case the internet can't crack. Here's the story. Sometime in the spring of 2017, a young man entered the woods in a New York State park. More than a year later, in the summer of 2018, his emaciated body was found in a tent in the forest of Florida. His boots were sitting just outside of the tent's entrance, and his body didn't appear to have suffered any visible trauma. Now, more than two years after the discovery, no one knows who he is, how he died, or why he'd spent the last year of his life wandering the dense forests that line America's east coast, almost always completely alone. We spent a lot of time on this podcast so far discussing the culture of hiking and exploration in America, but there is still an element of mystery around it. The forests are one of the last places you can truly disappear. Oh my goodness, how many missing people they have in Alaska. People go up to Alaska because they don't want to deal with people, they don't want to see people, and then they just disappear. Poof. That's retired game warden and podcaster Wayne Saunders, who we heard from last episode, discussing how many people hike into the wilds of Alaska or other remote locations with the intention of vanishing. In the age of facial recognition, social media, and the constant inundation of technology, the wilderness is one of the truly final locations that someone can just walk into and become someone else. One of the things that makes the case of the nameless hiker so strange is that he was nameless. In hiking culture, it's not uncommon for people to take on a, quote, trail name. Essentially, it's a nickname that you can give to other hikers that's memorable, but also a symbolic gesture to the life you've left behind. For a year, the young man wandered down the Appalachian Trail, slowly making his way south. He did encounter hikers along the way, never revealing his real name, though, though everyone he encountered said he was friendly and seemingly happy when they saw him. He even took some photos with fellow hikers along the way. That's why his fate is so strange. Sure, it's a little odd to venture into the woods for more than a year with no discernible destination, but it's not totally unheard of. 
But the mysterious traveler perished in such an odd way, and his journey leaves so many unanswered questions, the least of which is who he actually was. When his body was found, there was no note, sign of struggle, or evidence that he'd been in danger. He had several thousand dollars in his boot, and he was well-equipped. He was only a few miles away from a major highway, and having spent the last year navigating trails and campsites, finding his way back shouldn't have been that difficult of a task. Since his body was discovered, dozens of internet sleuths have undertaken the task of trying to solve the mystery, scouring missing persons databases and crime reports to no avail. There are several images of the man circulating, but no one has come forward with any information about his identity. Now, a DNA research company is cross-referencing genetic databases to try to uncover clues as to where he's from. But, even if they can identify close genetic matches, there's no guarantee they'll be able to track down family members. Look, anytime someone disappears or dies in mysterious circumstances, it's tragic. But there's something profoundly sad about a man dying alone in a tent in the woods. Will his family ever know what happened to him? What actually killed him? Did he attempt to find help? Having spent the last year in the forest, how did he suddenly become lost? He carried no phone, so aside from DNA, he left no clues as to his identity. That is, except for his trail name. He identified himself to fellow travelers as, quote, mostly harmless. It's an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, Man had always assumed that he was the most intelligent species occupying the planet, instead of the third most intelligent. The second most intelligent creatures were, of course, dolphins, who, curiously enough, had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth. They had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for tidbits. So they eventually decided they would leave Earth by their own means. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish. That's a clip from the most recent adaptation of the radio series and novel collection A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a satirical sci-fi franchise the missing hiker was apparently a fan of. The book tells the story of the destruction of Earth by an alien race. One of the book's final installments, which the author called the bleakest of the series, is titled Mostly Harmless. It's named after how the alien race in the story classified our planet before destroying it. You see, in the book, the aliens originally classified Earth as harmless. That is, until they encountered the humans that call it home, and the alien officials reclassified it as, quote, mostly harmless. Okay, I'm certain that the story of the hiker and the weird monolith found in the desert aren't connected, at least directly. But I'm also certain that they can tell us a lot about ourselves and the mystery we're trying to solve on this podcast. Both are fascinating stories. One, a weird sort of novelty. The other, a profound tragedy. But both are weirdly compelling real-life stories that hint at what makes the wild so compelling and at times so sinister. But what's most fascinating about them to me is how they both flew under the radar. They aren't the kind of national news stories that serious thinkers discuss. They are side notes to what algorithms and editors tell us are interesting, important, or newsworthy. They're real mysteries with undetermined significance, but because of where they took place, in the remoteness of America's wilderness, that we're conditioned to not really care. The wilderness, we're told, after all, is mostly harmless. But why should outside forces tell us what information is news and what isn't? And if we can be conditioned to ignore stories like these, 
What other truths are hiding just under our noses, like a monolith in the desert or satirical dolphins doing jumps to try to warn us of our own fate? In the modern era of information, who gets to say what's interesting and what's not? Why are some stories ignored and others embraced? So far this season, we've taken a deep dive into stories that each reveal a new look at a mystery. But one way we can determine the significance of these kinds of stories isn't just by looking at what we're missing in the present. It's also by re-examining the stories lost to time and history. It's interesting to see the, the threads that are shared across tribal boundaries, you know, cultural boundaries um, within the region. So in the Pacific Northwest, for example, there's the very um, uh, uh, open depiction of the Tsonaqua, this character, this uh, female uh, character. Uh, well, and there's, there's e even, this is, this is one of the challenges of doing science when it comes to cultural traditions and oral traditions is even amongst the stakeholders that there's not always commonality of interpretation of their own their own history and their own traditions but so some would actually say that Tsonaqua isn't just a female but that there are male and female Tsonaquas okay um, so just to put that out there but uh, uh, but it's usually depicted as the cannibal giantess mm. uh, she's got big hands she's got these pursed lips she's got these sleepy eyes and she snatches children and and lobs them in her basket and takes them home for dinner to eat. They, she's very dull-witted, dim-witted, and she uh, often falls asleep on the trail, and the kids are able to climb out and run home. You know, so they're redeemed from their naughtiness and so forth. Because yeah. they're usually kids that are that are delinquent or out past their curfew or doing something they weren't supposed to. That, so it also plays the boogeyman role. Well, the interesting thing is very dramatic in the totem poles and the ceremonial masks and the dances up in the Pacific Northwest. But what, what's curious is that you find bits and, and traces of it more obscure scattered throughout the Intermountain West. So here in my neck of the woods, I've examined uh, images of this uh, big-handed, you know, held up, held aloft. One of the, one of the classic historical pictures of the Tsonaqua in costume, uh, this hairy, hairy jumpsuit with the big mask and these great big artificial hands put on, human-like, standing in, in this pose. Well, you see that same pose show up in petroglyphs in, in uh, Wyoming and that we've examined. There's petroglyphs in Utah. There's some that date clear back to the Anasazi that have the same Little head, big broad shoulders, thick torso, hands held upright like this next to little little people that suggest the same thing. Then you you in, in addition to that commonality, what is curious is the uh, convergence with some of the described behaviors with what we know about the natural history of great apes or hominins, early hominins. Let's because yeah. I don't I'm always getting pegged as Oh, he believes they're just apes, you know, and they're, yeah. I don't think they're forest people. I don't think that they're closely related to humans mm. in, in a relative sense. I mean, like, yeah. you know, much more so than chimpanzees are closely related to us by comparison to other animals. But here, one, one more example is this, and it ties in with the Tsonaqua, because one of the names for this creature here in the Intermountain West is 
um, basically translates as, as the eater of children. Hmm. Uh, you know, same theme. And it stems apparently from a, a historical event where uh, a child was snatched by a, a Sasquatch uh, in, in the uh, dead of winter. A uh, big hairy arm comes under the teepee border and snatches a crying child and off they go. That's Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, the professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. We first heard from him last week. In addition to looking for physical evidence of some sort of North American primate, he's also fascinated by what indigenous communities around what is now North America seem to have documented when it came to encountering strange things in the wild. Though he has come to very different conclusions than someone like David Polites, they both point to ancient traditions that seem to indicate that modern humans aren't the only ones who encountered unexplained things in the wild. As with all myth, I mean, it's, it's like uh, there was a saying I came across one time, there is no, no myth without history and no history without myth. Mm-hmm. But they're intertwined. Myth is just one way that we, we try to make sense or... Um, catalog i guess our our human experiences but there's often a great deal of reality uh, underlying or woven within that fabric so what clues do ancient myths hold to unsolving our mystery well that's next time on hiding something Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.